Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 102 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. How are you, Avishai? I'm good. Thank you. Very good. It's a real honor to speak to you. The last time I saw you, you were playing in Montreal at the Jazz Festival last year. I was lucky enough to have a press pass, but I actually bought tickets to see you because, you know, sometimes they don't send tickets to the media. And then I chased you down the street to say hi to you because it was a great show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was you. That's me. Yeah, I'm the one. Yeah, yeah. But it was a crazy gig for you because you were coming as the Abishai trio. One of your members didn't make it. COVID was really crazy then. It was just still, yeah, hanging on that COVID thing or whatever, not totally organized with that, with traveling. Traveling was still in that mode, not perfect. <laughs> Far from that. Yeah. So we lost baggage and our piano player didn't show up. So when you have a piano trio and the piano player doesn't show up, then it's a different night. But we did the best we could and it was cool and people enjoyed. And the cool thing is that we're coming back to correct that. Well, you say correct that, but I thought it was one of the better shows that I saw. And I think well, part you. of my reason, I'd love to know your thoughts, is you probably had to do a lot of scrambling and adjusting. And maybe that spontaneity created an energy that, in that uncomfort or discomfort was a bit cuckoo for you. I don't know. What were your thoughts? Well, no. First of all, I'm happy you think that as an observer of the show. But for me, it was a bit like, oh man, I got this, all this stuff with the trio and the new record, this music that we're playing. I want to play it for people, you know? But as soon as I understood the, what was going on really, and that's that I got to deal with a situation here, I was trying to think in a creative way. And then I remember seeing Keon Harold down at the lobby of the hotel and I know about him and I've heard a bit and I was like, yeah, I think maybe this guy, and he was cool. I said, man, my piano player didn't show up. Are you up to just showing up and maybe doing sound check and checking a few tunes and then just spontaneously playing whatever he was like, yeah, totally. And so having him was great. And whatever else was there was very true to the moment, which is very jazz in that sense. I mean, if you can't hang in a situation like this and you call yourself a jazz musician, then it's a bit of a paradox, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a true moment of being a professional. Like I do a lot of keynote speaking and whether you're sick or not feeling well or the lights don't work or the slides don't work, it's you're the professional and you're there to make it happen and that was a big room and you made it happen yeah well thank you thank you i you know i mean i've it's not that i didn't think that it was going to work in some kind of way but still it was you know it was sold out way before and there was a lot of anticipation there for a certain thing so then i was happy to have a sold out house and a buzz going on but then i was like but I'm bringing them something. I'm going to tell them that as I go on stage, you know, 
Well, it was cool. It was something to remember. Was that the Shifting Sands show? Was that yeah. what it was supposed to be? Okay, cool. Yeah. That's wild, wild, wild. So let's talk a bit about my favorite instrument, and I hope it's yours too, the bass. Oh, I know man. that you started playing piano at nine, and it seems like we are almost the exact same age, you and I. And okay. it looks like we started at the exact same time, around 14. And it also seems like you heard Jacko, which I did too, and thought, what is this? I got to do that. Yeah, well, who didn't, right? So yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> How were you exposed to his music? How did you find out about it? someone pass it to you? Did you buy it? Because at that time, that album had already been out for a while. It's not like there was a new album yeah. at that moment. Right. Well, I was born in Israel in 1970. And um, my parents have always been music lovers or whether it was the radio or a record they put on non-musicians, but music lovers or listeners and whether it was a party that they had with some, or whatever it is, or like classical music that my mother would put on. So music was there in that sense. And whatever, wherever I heard music, I think it touched me in a way where I didn't realize the effect of it on me. But only when I was nine, 10, I went with my parents to a summer camp in Maine in 1980. And there, there was like a council, one of the counselors was played some piano. He played some blues and some boogie woogie and some, some cool, cool stuff that I, you know, all I knew was, uh, the music I grew up on in Israel and, and, you know, some classical music or, but really didn't know music. But it got me, it really took me to the piano. This guy was playing this cool stuff. And then he showed me some stuff and I started just playing around with the instrument. And from that moment on, coming back to Israel and then having a piano at home because my sister took lessons at a certain point. And I started going to the piano and crafting little, I don't know what to call it because it's not a, it wasn't any great pieces. But it was things, it was little stories or little entities, little lives, you know, little um, something, something that had a thing. Fact is, I was trying to keep memory, like I wanted to remember it as my mother was calling me to come and eat, whatever, it was dinner. And I'm like, so there were some seashells on the, on the piano that were a part of my sister's collection. And I just took some of them and put them on the keys. I was playing whatever I came up with, which was a thing, a little thing. I just, to remember it visually, I put those things on it. So the notion of keeping something at that point, that age, today seems pretty interesting to me, you know, because I, I was just in it, but so in relation to composition or the need to keep or to, you know, to preserve a certain kind of thing. So that came early, but then I, I went with my parents to St. Louis to live there for two years as my mom had a job there. So I ended up at 14 years old in St. Louis, Midwest America, public school, whatever into music, jazz band, playing some piano, taking some theory, and then taking the electric bass. I can't 
Until today, I can't tell you exactly why I picked up the electric bass. I don't think I knew what I was really... It was kind of, I, I don't know. I still really have no idea how I came about to the electric bass. But the cool thing is that I went to study with this guy, Jay Hungerford, probably the, one of the best session or jazz upright and electric bass players in St. Louis. And he gave me a tape of tapes, still tape, of course, of Jaco's first record. And on the other side probably was Return to Forever with Chick and Stanley and all that crazy stuff. And I took it and that, you know, from then on, I was like, boom, you know, I luckily I had the capacity to understand some of the intensity of that music, especially Jaco's record that was like so slick and so smart and so unique and such a sound and identity just took me by storm, you know. And then I, I, I played that and then we came back to Israel and I was playing with some young people my age, starting to play Coltrane, Monk, studying the music, still playing electric bass. And only when I was 20, I bought an upright bass and decided to move to New York when I was 21, which was 92. And that's when I moved to New York with a bass and a Two suitcases, and, or maybe one suitcase, actually. Not knowing anything other than the fact that I was accepted into the new school in New York, and, and that was going to provide my visa and, and whatever else. And, that, and, and then some. There's much more. I don't know what, yeah. where you want me to stop. <laughs> We're going to go everywhere. Okay. So it's, in okay. it's interesting because usually when you walk into a school and you see an instrument and it's bass, it's actually usually a stand-up or double. It's not usually an electric. That's kind of a weird thing where you get introduced to electric, you're a young guy in the 90s, and you're was, switching yeah, to the classic. No, I remember now. I remember. Sorry. I had a neighbor younger than me that was into all this English rock and American rock, but, you know, like Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple. And then Leonard Skinner, and then I was checking out Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and stuff. And that's in my teens. And that led me to the electric, maybe. Yeah, maybe that, because I was listening to rock, a bit of jazz. Jaco came a bit after. It was first, first Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. And then really fast progressing into the whatever sounded more challenging or you know, virtuosi, virtuoso stuff or, you know, like hard to get. I was attracted to the stuff that was beyond, I think, you know. Where do you think that comes from? Because again, being almost the same age, I think of how we were exposed to a real high level of 80s pop when we were younger, maybe tail end of 70s, end of disco. But the popular music was very popular, and the jazz at that point was so fringe. The jazz my dad liked in terms of it being your Count Basie's and Oscar Peterson's, it wasn't in the Return to Forever Jacko stuff. That was actually not even of that generation. It was from the 70s, but here we are growing up in the 80s. And what were you listening to at the time? What was exciting for you? Yeah, well, I mean, more than one thing, like I... But I remember listening to Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie too at that point where I was in St. Louis and starting to pick up on some jazz and whatever, whatever, whoever told me about it was like 
I was checking maybe Oscar Peterson too already. I checked whatever I could. Some was more appealing. Some was difficult to. I picked up what I what I picked up, but there was always a very specific investigation that I was making on whatever it was. But at that point, when I heard Jaco's play, it was so specific yeah. and so to the point, so what it is that I was withdrawn to it just in a natural way. It spoke to many sides of my musical desires or, or, um, I don't know what to call it, but it, it really spoke to me. And then it was, the rest is history in some ways, because that took me in such a way where I'm like, okay, you know, this is where you can get with an instrument in general, it, it, not even the best. Wow. So I got into it, you know, I immersed into it, but in some ways I had understood or figured or just in the back of my head or something, I was like, nobody's going to play like him. This is not to be like, I sh maybe, I don't know. And so I let, I just took another, how can you play electric when he played, you know, what he played? It's like, if you have very big dreams and and you have this very strong connection to yourself as well. And you, you're not really even realizing it at that point. But I think in the back of my head, I was like, man, it's done. This instrument is done. I seriously, I still say it today, but I think that in a very weird kind of way, I got it early on and took my, took it to the, the upright. And I'm very happy that I did that because I, with the upright at that point of my life when I was 20 and not a bad musician in some ways already, I devoted myself to it in a way where it became something very close to me. Like, so the, the connection to the upright for me is a uh, kind of like something that had to happen. Like, wow, this is where I really feel at home. I don't know if it's because when I, like the, the time of my life when I started or whatever it is, but it's the one instrument because I play pretty well piano in some ways and I play this and I, but the upright, I feel like it's not an instrument. It's an extension or this thing that the time of my life when I devoted myself to it was crucial in the way where it became the way I'm presenting myself as a musician, as an artist or as a performer. I was laughing because Jacko made you start and quit. <laughs> it's like exactly like me. It's very, it's very, it's very true in that sense. You know, I mean, listen, in the most blunt and humoristic way, that's what it is. And in other ways, it's not only that, it's not that only that existed, or, but it was so, so complete that that's what I wanted, but I didn't want to try and get it on an instrument. Man. I don't know if it was so, you know, thought of, but I'm saying. I'm just actually saying, thank God for the upright becoming such an interesting world to explore physically, sonically, spiritually. It really answered those questions. And I feel that I went as far as I would ever dream playing an instrument and be being myself. Yeah. It's pretty crazy then to think that you moved to New York in the early 90s and by 97, you're actually with Chick Corea. 
I mean, that's also bizarre. And if that return to forever's on that side B of that cassette, I mean, here you are a guy who's traveling to the States, but mostly in Israel. Like, what are the odds here? This is crazy stuff. It's pretty crazy. And and I got to say, when I came to New York, I did many things, including working a non-musical, like, like I, I, I was in construction work. I was in moving, like real serious physical labor. I remember coming back home and being tired, but still picking up the bass and trying to practice. The first year to two years in New York were pretty tough in that way. But at the same time, I was listening and going to hear people at the clubs or being in my ensemble in school and where incredible musicians, young, like my age, but really incredible ones were playing with me. So everything was like, I had to become so much better in in a short time. Otherwise I'd be like, no, I can't do it. I'll run back home. But I was determined to at least be able to become a part of this incredible scene. At the time, New York, it was very special times in New York, the nineties. How does that happen? How do you find Chick Corea? How do you meet with, I'm a nerd. I love these stories. Yeah, of course. Well, when I was in New York, again, Like in my ensemble was Brad Meldau. You know, we had like uh, in the new school, we're like the same age. For instance, he's one. Pete Bernstein, Adam Cruz. These are guys that were in my ensemble and then that were playing, that we were doing sessions with. And then I'm hearing them at the clubs or I'm playing with them. It's like that the level is crazy and I'm not really good enough yet, but I'm really enjoying the fact that I'm not that, there's better musicians than, than me. Like it's the best situation to be, to have people that are better than you and that you want to play with and you make your way to. So within New York scene, like the young, whatever, I was already like, you know, playing with this guy, playing with that guy. And then because I had this thing about Latin music where I was playing, um, I had a good rhythm for that or. I loved it and I could play some tumbao. Uh, Jorge Rossi, which was, he was playing with Brad Meldau at the time. We met and he really liked my playing. And then he recommended me to Danilo Perez. And then I'm like this Israeli young bass player. There's a bunch, not a bunch, but there were a few Latin jazz guys that were serious. And I'm like, but you know, I, I didn't think too much. I learned Danilo's music like crazy. And then I met him in Boston for an audition. And then I knew his music so well, it was like, boom, got the gig, started playing with Danilo. Jeff Tane Watts was a part of the trio. We recorded for Impulse with Terry Lynn Carrington, Panamonk, this record that made some noise. Then I'm 25 and I'm playing with Danilo and we're going out. And then the cats start to know me. And then it was Small's time, the era of Small's in New York. And I was a part of the young generation there with Kurt Rosenwinkel playing there. We played together, but he was playing his music with his band, which was incredible. And I would play with my band and Omar Avital would play with his band. And it was a really melting pot. And it was like a revival of the 60s or the 50s was something about that time that was pretty incredible. And we all got a chance to lead a band in a club that you didn't have to be signed to a major label, which was yeah. the great thing about Smalls. 
And then I was writing music since I came New York to New York, writing on a on a keyboard in my apartment, always writing music. And I came up with some tunes, tunes, and then I started a band with Jeff Ballard that I saw play with Kurt that I loved, and I asked him if he want to play, wants to play. Then he was in the band, and Jason Linder was in the band, and Steve Wilson, who I knew from Ralph Peterson, was in the band, and I did a band with with horns and wrote arrangements for some stuff, and that's Adama, my first record. I recorded all of that music myself in New Jersey and paid for it to put it out on fresh sound, new talent at the time, Spanish labels that were giving a chance to unknown young musicians in New York. And Jorge Rossi, again, told me, man, if you want to put out a record of your own, I can talk to the guy in Fresh Sound in, in Spain and you can do your first record like that. And I said, great. And I took my music, which was Adama, my first record, and recorded it in New Jersey. And once I heard it, after we recorded, I was like, wow, this shit is great. <laughs> really? It is great. It's a great album. <laughs> yeah. And then what happened is I was touring with Danilo and we did the jazz convention in Chicago in like 97 or 96. And we're playing this showcase with Tane on drums and myself and Danilo. And after the show came to me, this young man, really nice guy, probably my age, maybe a little older and said, man, I loved your playing that line. And then he said, I, I work with Chick, with Chick Corea. Like, and I brought a tape of that recording to shop around with Warner Brothers, Matt Pearson at the time. And whoever I wanted to get signed, I was trying to get signed with my music. It was a time in the nineties where the major labels still did some stuff for artists. It was whatever it was. That was the thing to do to get signed. And I remember giving it to Matt Pearson and the years. And then I gave it to this guy, Eric Seho, that says, said he worked with Chick. I said, I don't know if he's going to listen to it or whatever. Please give it to Chick. If you get a chance, he said, yeah, of course. I forgot about it. And then like two weeks after I got a call from Chick, he called my number in New York. I'm like in my apartment in the Upper East, like this dump, which I loved <laughs> for the longest time. We had uh, machines to remember how you uh, answering machines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So first there was a message from his manager at the time, Ron Moss. Hi, this is Ron Moss. We'd like to talk to you. Whatever. Couldn't believe it. And then Chick called me and I was like, I couldn't believe it. He was he started talking to me about the music. He was like, man, I've been listening to your music in my car for like two weeks and I love it. I love this tune and that tune. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. And it's like a fairy tale in that sense. It's like, I, I love the way, I love your compositions. I'd love to record a record for you. I was like, don't you want to take this? He's like, no, no, no. I'll come to New York and we'll get in the studio. And we were, I was like, cool. I don't have a problem with that. And that's what happened. And I, I couldn't believe it. And then he came to New York and produced my first record and played on it, of course. And I had some guests on it, like Brad and, and Don Elias. And that was my first record. And, and at the end of the, that recording session, Chick came to me and says, man, I love your band. Maybe I'll make a band out of that, that band. I think he had like a pre-planned thing, you know. But anyway, I was like, and I want you to play bass in that band, you know. Then I started playing with him and we had that origin band, which yeah. was compiled out of my band, 
with little changes. I did two years with him there, writing with him stuff. Like I was his right-hand man. Like I, I wasn't just a bass player for Chick. The thing with Chick was really deep because he liked me as a composer as much as a bass player, if not more. <laughs> like the composer thing. So it was a really great relationship when we would write stuff together or talk about. He really gave it up to me. Like he, he, nobody gave it up to me like he did. Funny enough, because it felt like Chick was so confident with who and what he is that he could give it up to me in the way he did, which was very inspiring, almost unbelievable in some ways. And then it was like five years of incredible friendship and but really learning from a master in many ways. And then I went out my own way. After a few records on his label, I was very much dedicating myself, starting to dedicate myself to my own thing. It's amazing too, because if you think of the catalog, I mean, your catalog is unbelievable, Avishai. You go from Adama to Devotion and Colors and Unity, but then you not only go on to do your own thing, you make a business decision to start your own label to do that. Yeah, in 2002. Two, yeah. yeah with my, I, listen, what happened is like I, I made my fourth record with Concord Stretch Records and I stopped playing with Chick and then my rec, I was playing piano on that record and they was like, the label was like, this guy's crazy. They let me go and then I had to find my next, how am I going to put my next record up? Instead of trying to get another label, I just said, you know, I started working with my manager at the time, Ray Jefford, and we decided, I decided, let's do it. Let's put some money, invest, and start our own label, which was very new at that time for jazz guys. And so we did that, and I put out Lila, first one on that label, and that did very well in France. It started, they played a lot of it, and I started getting a thing in Europe. And then just, my biggest thing is that I write a lot of music. I have written a lot of music in my life already. That's the real key I try to say to the young musicians or not, not, you know, not everybody is a writer. You don't, you can't force yourself, but if you are, it's a great thing because it's a great way to live your story, tell your story, live your life as a story. In conjunction, when you write, you're documenting your moments in life. So it's this is a world, Avishai, where it's 20 albums, maybe more. You're almost putting them out every year. There's a real sense of proficiency that I feel with you as an artist, this real need to really be creating new stuff always. I even sensed it in how you were talking about the Montreal show for Shifting Sands, this you know, it's like, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be back next year with a new album. There's an urgency in how you create. It's interesting. Well, you know, it's just, to be honest, it's, it's something that I can reflect on if I look at it. I, I usually, to be honest, most of my life, I'll tell you, I, I don't, I look forward usually and I'm like always thinking of how can I make whatever idea into the best craft that I can. So it's, it's, it's kind of like you're not, you don't have time to dwell too much. Whatever you do is what you do and you got to believe in it. And this is, 
luckily, again, the fountain of creativity and the ability to sit with a piano usually, but not only, and devote myself into this stream of whatever and being able to create and decide decisions that become something meaningful to others as much as myself. First of all, it's meaningful to me. I believe that when it's meaningful to me, it's going to be meaningful to others. That's the real concept behind it. But again, I'm lucky in that sense, or I don't know if to call it lucky, but just fortunate in the way where if I wasn't a writing person, like if I wasn't a writer, I don't know what music would be to me. It's I can't think of myself other ways. Like it's almost like I had to create my own language to make myself make people aware of me. Really, and like. But there's something I find really interesting in this, Abishai, because I can sit back and think about who I am as a person, and again, similar age to you, and brought up culturally similarly as well. Israel still being a new nation. And I think part of what I'm hearing is the roots are your discovery. It's not who you are, because when I think of music and Israel in our age, I think of Shlomo Artsy and things like that. Like I'm not thinking about this long evolution of music that brought, and yet because of where Israel sits in the world and the influences that are coming from all different angles, there's something there about what makes great art and you don't hear a lot of it. I think part of the uniqueness of what we hear is Avishai is a white Israeli guy playing with all of these cats. There's a really interesting cultural thing there too that I'm trying to play with. Yeah. Well, you know, we can think of many things that connect or are part of something that brings another thing or connects to another thing. But at the end of the day, it's like, when you think of kids, my, my, look at my children are absorbing the human story or from beginning to how it, it's like, uh, it's so individual. It's such a random thing. If there's a God, it's in the randomness of who we are. Each one of us is such a world and, you know, and it's a, so I think that music in that sense is the real liberty for a soul to be and what they want or need or to be. It's such a magic type of form. It's magic. It's like the, again, it's maybe it's what people's think is God. I don't know. So, Cause I don't know what God is. I'm not a religious person, but I'm very emotional and I'm very philosophical about things, you know, and I'm like, when I think of those moments in music, what I get from them, those real strong moments that I've been fortunate to be a part of, whether it's a Chick Corea record or my own project, recording it and making really a difference or saying something substantial. Because many people record music, but it's more rare to really hear music, something about it that's like, you know, not, not everybody has that, you know, and that's the beauty of it because it's. It doesn't belong to us, but we become a part of that magic and we are able to be an influence on that magic. It's huge. Be a part of this thing where you don't know anymore what's what, who's who, what does it 
It's not about belonging to someone. It's this stream that you become a part of. And, you know, we have the ability to create our own language in a way. When people talk about your music, they'll use the word Sephardic influence, which I understand. I think there's something intrinsically connected between Sephardic music and Latin music. And I think that part of the originality in how you create music as a listener that I take, those are two things that come out almost even more than the jazz. Can you talk or use words to describe if you see that connection between the Sephardic side and the Latin side? It feels like there's something very connected there. Well, yeah. I mean, historically, there is factually. I mean, it's a fact that the Jews in Spain thousand years ago they were a part of the golden age, what you call when there was Christianity, Judaism, and Islam living together and enjoying the f- richness of cultures together and learning and respecting one another. I'm sure it wasn't like I make it sound, but it was the most of that that I know from those religions and those cultures together. I remember sitting down with Paco de Lucia, which I was fortunate to play with, with Chick years ago in Victoria, Spain. I remember sitting with him at the dinner table after the show. And other than the fact that I was, and still the biggest, like he's for me, like Jaco and like Bach, you know, I'm with you. Totally agree. Yeah. 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 So I'm like sitting next to him and we're talking. And then I was so surprised in a great way when he was talking about music and flamenco and saying, man, the, a lot of the flamenco orig- origins are Jewish connotated as much as Moors, the Arab and whatever gypsy, even India, Indian influence, mm-hmm. but the Jewish culture or the, the, the Latino, he says Latino is very influential on flamenco. And even though in Latino, there is some of the most ancient or like the, the origins of Spanish that if you want to know some of the origins of Spanish itself, Ladino has that. So it's intertwined. And for him to say that to me was great because I, it, this is what you're talking about. It, yeah. it has some of the same roots or some of the comes from a mixture of Europe, European harmonies with African and whatever gypsy influences of but Latino and flamenco and Latin music is very connected, very connected. It's amazing too, because if someone would have said to me, check out this album from Avishai in 1998, it's called Adama, and he's from Latin America, I would have said, oh yeah. I'm really curious about how you see your culture personally impacting your approach, even to the base, I'm curious, because you talked earlier about this attraction you had to Latin, but there's something else culturally going on there that's attracting uh, The Middle East as well. Yeah. The African connection with everything, but uh, as much as I'm, I am my culture, what I'm trying to say is we are beyond that as well. So I, I think that I'm affected. I'm one of those people, I'm affected by almost anything that means something. So the same with music, like I, I could hear anything, any movement that makes something that moves me. I don't, I, I really don't really care for genres too much. I do want to conquer things that are 
stimulating to me like anyone else, but I think I went, I know that I went very deep into, just like I do with bebop or with jazz or with Paul Chambers, I did the same, if not more, for uh, Cacharo or Andy Gonzalez or Robbie Rodriguez or the music, you know, uh, uh, Cuban, Afro-Cuban or Eddie Palmieri and studied that that realm like inside out and lived it, or, like was dreaming it. So I'm a dreamer in that sense. Like I dream about things or like I, I, I imagine myself in a situation and sometimes becomes that or even more. Talk to me a little bit about what happens between an album like Shifting Sands and your latest Iraqo with Abraham Rodriguez Jr. Again, I think of one album to another and I'm always in the mindset of what are you thinking? Did you know it was going to go there? It seems so you know, wild that these are the two albums. I'm not thinking, first of all. It's <laughs> not a thinking process. I, I'm thinking just if when I need to um, technically put one thing with another because I know that this, but I don't, it's not a thinking process. Not the writing and not the outcome of the record in that sense. I never thought of those things too much. I just compile something that I feel that makes one thing, one work or one experience. This thing with A.B. Rodriguez is something I thought of for many years and it was just about when is it going to be the right time for me to go to New York and get in a studio with A.B. alone and just do those songs and things that I remember him doing in such an original and incredible way. It was, so it was a dream of mine for a long time. There came the time when we did it. And then I was like, okay, that'll be the next record. Do I have to do another trio record? No. I've made my mark in that sense. I, I, I have a sound. I have a way. I have a way of expression that I think people know already or like is it's there. So I'm not in that place where I think that I need to do something or like it needs to be anything. I felt so fresh about doing something totally, well, not totally, because if you hear it, it's all connected, but the sound of just the bass and conga and some voice, yeah, it's as different as I've done anything up until today. If you think of my records and what I've done until today, it's the most different one so far. Yeah. yeah. When you know it's different. How do you think about the bass? How do you think about what you're going to do compositionally, playing-wise? Is it one of those things where you pick it up and go? Or are you constantly practicing with it? What's your schedule like with this? Well, it's half and half. It depends on the situation. I've accumulated, like we all do as musicians and artists, or people that devote themselves all their lives into this realm or this thing. I have accumulated a lot of knowledge and way to go about and with the bass. My thing has always been like, I want to be able to play anything with anyone at any point. Pretty ambitious in one sense, but on another, totally making sense. Why not? Just like sports or any, or anything that you go for, might as well go all the way. So for me, it was about like, I want to be able to hang in any situation. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to think that I can't do something. Not because I need to prove that to myself, because I love this music so much that I want to be 
in every corner of it. That's how I've been always. And then life itself and my preparations and whatever path who I played with and what I've done has brought me to do different things. But the cool thing is that I have enough confidence in myself to do what I'm currently doing in life and then hopefully be able to compile it into a record and send it out. Just go, just do it because I feel it. I feel this. I know that not everybody's going to like it, but maybe more than a few will, you know, it's a great feeling because it's really what I'm feeling. It's not like any, I'm giving out my way of feeling my life, my, I'm sharing my most honest moments, I guess. When I think about the genre and I use the word in a very sparse way because of what you do. It's still not an easy life. You're very fortunate. You record these albums, you get to go on tour. I follow your socials. You're very busy. Like you said, you built a brand even around who you are and your music. But jazz in and of itself, it's not like we're doing these massive arenas and stadiums or you have bands like Metallica that are now coming here and doing two nights at the stadium sold out. It is a different type of life. How do you see that part of it for yourself, especially as a bass player too? Yeah, I think it's tough anyway, even if you are a part of a band that is mega top. And at the end of the day, you don't need much more money than what you need to eat and to live the way, the humble way that, and then it becomes, at a certain point, it becomes not, you know, yeah, you can be a millionaire, but are you really like, is that for a real creator, a real musician, a real artist, and there's not many. But for the real ones, money comes or comfort comes second. First comes the first is the mission to see through something and to share it. That's the most important thing. And then whatever. I never worried about money and I'm successful. I'm more successful in any way than I could have ever dreamed of. There's no end to it. But at the same point, the real great jazz and classical musicians, the real leaders of good music in this world are not about money, never have been. And the good pop too, I'm not saying, comes with a territory that you make a lot more money because of, but it's the true creator, the true artist, you just, it happens. It, whatever happens, happens. You gotta do or be what you are. It's the only way, otherwise you really, you're lost. There's no, no chance for you. Talk to me just a little bit about technology. Here we are sitting at the beginning of the summer of 2023, and it's very hard to not hear conversations about things like artificial intelligence in particular. I'm not looking to you, Abishai, as my computer scientist, but we are in a world where a lot of the production, a lot of the work is going to change through this technology. People will be able to say, I want it to have more bass, give it a more Latin feel. And just through the prompts, it's creating art. We're seeing art that we thought technology could never create. That seems very human. We're seeing even bands, younger bands, like Polyphia would be one of them. They're a hard rock music band that they're trying to recreate the sounds of beats and things with tech on actual instruments. We hear vocalists who sound like they have auto-tune just because that's what they're used to hearing. And so they're replicating it. Have you thought about how this world is changing around you? You know, the story of Babylon, this is all that. It's like, it's also for Adam and Eve and the apple. And 
it's always going to be the same. As long as we're a human, it's just the same. It's all relative. It's a different thing of the same thing. At the end of the day, I'm not interested if the human factor is not there. So if the human is, if it's done, in a, then it's done. But as long as I'm a human, I don't care for those things. I really don't because I think that it's all always going to go to the same place. As if we're not human and we have this thing and whatever, so we're not human. So what are we talking about? It's not interesting. The interesting thing is humans between themselves, with themselves, in relation to themselves and nature, of course, and whatever. That's the richest, most love as is between people is the highest form of anything. So this AI thing is, yeah, I don't care for that. I'm, it's like, it's another, yeah, of course it's very significant because wow, you can really emulate or stimulate whatever you want, like emulate, yeah, certain things in a way where it's so what? But at the end of the day, you'll see that whatever is not really coming from a human, human, one human's experience as a work is never going to be the same. It won't hold the same thing. I bet it won't. It can't. Or if it does, then it then relates to a non-human thing already. But as long as the human is there, the human soul, the, this mystery, this godly thing, those things are just a noise in the bored people's life, which I've, I'm so happy to say that I've never been bored. Like I love being bored, but I'm not really bored ever. I'm curious about when you're playing, how you're seeing things. Is it about playing a composition? Is it about improv? Is it about experimentation? Where do you feel you're playing evolves the most in which of those scenarios are you most feeling that creativity flow well you actually said it yourself everything you said is one it's not really one thing separate from the other the epitome of being immersed in music is being part of the writing part of the performance like the way you express yourself all that comes with it which is the moments the actual moments within when you play with people, especially when you are on stage and there's like an hour and a half or two hours that you're there, that's the golden time. That time is like, there's no more precious time than that. Because that time, you have the ability to make a change, to make a difference and to make an impact. That's the highest order of humanity in potential. Those things all are within themselves, that the composition, the expression, within it, the giving that composition, the freedom to another great musician to express themselves on huge, you know, actually sharing music is very, very high, very high. It's hard to beat the live show when you have that for sure. So what is the one thing that really made you think differently about something that you may have thought one way, but it could be a book, piece of music, something that really changed your perspective? Man. That's just hard to say. I don't know if changed my perspective, but molded my whole perspective is Miles Davison's. The way he is and gives music, the way his presence or his being, again, the human factor of him, why does he touch you so much in, in relation to other trumpet players that are, could be great as well, but 
what is this thing when music or anything becomes art is that for me, that's what I go by. I, I wish to be, I wish to be that I'm inspired by that very much because it's a whole thing. It's beyond just a composition or one note. It's a being, it's being there. It's your, it's the way how present you are and what you give. After we learn how to play for many years and we never stop, but at a certain point we become a vessel. We become yeah, a delivery a, system. Yeah. It becomes a n nature for you to this, to give you, to share and to create this energy on earth by what you're doing. And the older I get, the more I can look at it from the side and actually see or realize that I'm doing that. I'm doing that to people. That's all I'm, I wish for. I got to tell you, Abishai, not a day goes by that I won't pop onto Apple Music. I type in Abishai Cohen and I just hit that play button and it takes me on that energy adventure. So I can't thank you enough for your music, the time Amazing. you thank shared you with us here. Beautiful. And beautiful uh, let's make sure to see you in Montreal at the Jazz Festival and also the new album, Iroko. So it's an exciting time. Thanks for your time, Abishai. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. And all the best with what you do. And thank you for what you do. And maybe I'll see you in Montreal again. Mm.